Hi there. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to season two of the Let's Talk Sim podcast, brought to you by Anaxel, where we interview some of the brightest minds in simulation to discuss new methodologies, the current and future state of the discipline, learning resources, and inspiring stories. Anaxel is dedicated to advancing the science of healthcare simulation, and this podcast is an extension of our passion for simulation. I'm your host, Kyle Johnson, and I'm an associate professor and the associate dean for simulation at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Nursing and a member of the Anaxel Education Committee. Welcome, everybody. We are excited for our sixth and final episode for the 2023 Let's Talk Sim podcast. And today we have a great treat for you uh, in that we are interviewing Dr. Nikki Fogg. Dr. Nikki Fogg has over 22 years of experience in the nursing profession, specializing in child health nursing and nursing education. She is a certified pediatric nurse, certified nurse educator, and certified healthcare simulation educator. Nikki currently serves as the Director of Simulation Education and Technology and an Associate Professor at Texas Women's University. She oversees simulation and learning lab operations across three centers within the College of Nursing facilitates faculty development and simulation best practices, and supports the design, integration, and evaluation of high-quality simulation-based education in undergraduate and graduate programming. Nikki has conducted research related to virtual simulation, clinical reasoning, clinical judgment development, and clinical learning environments. Her current research program focuses on instructional strategies and simulation, which we're going to hear about more today. She has published and presented throughout the United States and internationally, and she's an active member of the Society of Pediatric Nurses, the International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning, and the Society for Simulation and Healthcare, serving on several national committees. Welcome, Nikki. We are excited to have you today. Uh, to begin, tell us a little bit about your experience as a nurse and your story of how you began to get interested in simulation. Okay, thanks, Kyle. I'm excited to be here. Let's see. I started out as a pediatric nurse uh, with a background in pediatric intensive care, a little bit of ortho neuro rehab, some chronic care with some uh, neonatal intensive care thrown in, kind of run the gamut of that, and then uh, completed my master's in nursing education. At that point, I started teaching child health nursing primarily. And took over as course manager of that course about two years into that and found, you know, we were still doing at that time. I had no experience with high fidelity sim as an undergraduate nursing student, but we still had at that point in my nurse educator career, about 10 students at the bedside in the simulation lab, uh, trying to all manage a patient at once. So you would have the students that were very engaged and talking over everyone else. And then you'd have those that would hide in the corner and yep. you could never tell how they were doing. And so we started to think, could there be a better way to do this? And at that point, we developed a series, our team of like seasonal multiple patient themed simulation scenarios around the different seasons. So we had Halloween, we had winter, we had spring and summer, and we would actually um, like dress the lab up for Halloween. Like we were in the ED with small, with um, common pediatric emergency diagnoses. So we created a set of a blended kind of modality where the students would see 
an individual patient within a group of five and then go back and work together to prioritize those patients from highest to lowest in their needs. And so that was kind of my big, you know, aha, I'm, how much I enjoyed it and getting into that and kind of the operations and the logistics and development behind it, but then also how the different educational pedagogy and all of that informs simulation and getting students involved in that. Awesome. So since then, I mean, so since that beginning time in your uh, in your educational career, you have received your doctorate in health professions education. Can you tell um, our audience a little bit about how that informs your work in nursing, uh, but also I'm assuming has broadened your perspective of health professions education? It has. It really has um, taken me out of that silo of nursing. I think sometimes we get so focused and we're in a silo of nursing and a nursing um, thought modality. And the group that I started with, I want to say my first seminar, my online seminar that I went to had about 16 people from nine professions in five or six different countries. So you got this whole interprofessional flavor and also kind of this global perspective from all of these different professions and backgrounds. And I think just a greater awareness and respect uh, for these other, you know, professions within this, but also looking at networking itself, but also the peer relationships I've developed and how we can come together with interprofessional activities to help encourage our students and simulation in their growth, which is important because our, our new Texas Women's University, our Denton home campus, we're actually broke ground on a new building that will open in fall of 2025. That's going to be a shared interprofessional space between the College of Nursing and Health Sciences. So that's going to be really exciting. Um, going forward. So I think that will help support that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I would imagine that background with you having nursing, a nursing background and an interprofessional health professions background will lend itself well to that kind of uh, future collaboration. That's exciting to hear. Uh, okay, so I had said in your bio that we wanted to hear a little bit about the work that you've been doing. And I have been watching, you have been dropping some excellent publications surrounding all kinds of things around you know, screen-based simulation, video pre-briefing, clinical decision-making, the NCSBN, clinical judgment measurement model. Talk to us a little bit about your program of research and your findings. Well, I've been very lucky over the past 16th year I've been teaching to work with a strong team of um, pediatric nurses that really has a great set of strengths that meld well together and is very supportive. So I've been able to be involved along the process of some of their research earlier on, um, which has given me some more confidence and comfort going into starting to look at my own program of research. And I started kind of looking at different screen-based simulation modalities, different types of programming, and how to tie those into the different clinical decision-making models and how those could be used to measure clinical decision-making with virtual or screen-based sim. And that's led to my dissertation, which actually pulled in the NCSBN clinical judgment measurement model and screen-based simulation, specifically um, the Sentinel-U prioritization of care series that we worked with. And then, and I can tell you a little more about that in a second. And then it really focused on my director role of trying to get buy-in and get 
support best practices. And that's how the video pre-briefing came about as we were actually working with a course and looking at how they were preparing students using best practices for pre-briefing and debriefing and trying to model if, you know, what's efficient and timely for them, but what also uses best practices and prepares students best for their simulation. And so that's what's come out of that as well. My dissertation itself was kind of, it was a three article dissertation. Okay. And so it had three study components. And the first one, it looked at uh, the relationship with pre-licensure nursing students and their self-confidence and anxiety related to clinical decision-making after using uh, multiple patient screen-based SIM. So we compared two different groups, uh, one that used the SIM and one that did not, and how at the same points in the semester to see what their anxiety and self-confidence were. The second one looked at the impact of those targeted screen-based prioritization of care SIMs, which were actually aligned with different areas on the clinical decision-making model. And then their clinical judgment skills overall related to those cognitive processes on that clinical judgment measurement model. And then as we were going through that, we started to find some gaps in our own curriculum with this during the analysis. And so the study three was more of a descriptive kind of piece on how we used a continuous quality improvement um, and plan do study act cycle to look at curricular evaluation and change within the program itself. And what we found was obviously there's an inverse relationship between students' perceived anxiety and self-confidence. Overall, students in the intervention cohort, they had higher levels of self-confidence and decreased anxiety from pre to post, but the control cohort did report similar increases and decreases in anxiety over time when compared. So over time, it, it's a wonder, you know, is it actually the simulation or is it just participating in that experience itself of going through the second semester of nursing school that helps increase their self-confidence? The one thing I did find that was important is these students still had trouble or felt that they were still a little anxious with independent decision-making and not as self-confident, which you would expect that at that level, second semester nursing students. But I also felt like that that was reassuring because I wouldn't want that level of student to be overconfident in their abilities and not willing to ask for help. And it did show they were all very confident or felt they were in asking for help or seeking appropriate resources as needed. So I find found that a little reassuring. And then the second one, it was interesting. So they basically took two different simulations, a medical and a geriatric simulation at two points in the semester and looked at their ability to move through the steps of recognizing and analyzing cues, generating solutions and taking action, prioritizing hypotheses and going through those steps on the clinical judgment measurement model. And so we found overall that students, they increased in their ability to select and prioritize the interventions, which they consider generate solutions and taking actions. However, they decreased in their ability to triage patients to the level of care and prioritize within the level of care. And so those are when I start asking the why questions. Why did this happen? What was going on? So what we found is while most students could select the highest priority patient in each setting. For example, if one had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and was in respiratory distress, they 
70% or so realized those patients were the sickest patient. They had trouble placing the remaining patients in the highest to lowest priority order. And so we started to look at why, which led into that PDSA cycle, which actually to me came to be some of the most interesting data when we got into it. So for example, in the adult medical unit piece of that adult simulation, less than 50% prioritized all five patients in the highest to lowest order, if that makes sense, one being the highest and five the lowest. Yet 73% got the highest priority patient, which was our patient with the shortness of breath and a pulmonary infection. And then more than 60% got the remaining patients in the correct slot. So actually they didn't do as bad as we potentially thought looking at the overall. In the ICU, they hadn't had that content yet. So we're going, okay, where do we present this content? So only 16% correctly prioritized the patients, but 50% got the highest priority patient. Okay. So, okay. Well, we recognize that. And it, some of the narrative comments from students, they recognized, for example, that we could classify three of these patients as being cardiac patients or having a circulatory problem, but they were unsure how to prioritize like a heart attack along with bradycardia or AFib. So which one's the highest priority one? This can cause a clot, but if their heart's not beating fast enough, that's a problem. But if it stops, <laughs> so they would have that problem. And then, so they did okay on that one where the decrease was, was in geriatric. And so we started to look at their comments on where they were struggling. And a lot of them didn't know the difference between things like spheres of care. Like when we're talking about AACNs, you know, palliative care versus home health, acute care, chronic care, things like that. They didn't have a difference between home health care versus inpatient rehab, hospice, palliative care. And so it's like, where are we teaching that and how are we presenting that to students? And so those students scored lower overall with about 16% prioritizing them highest to lowest, but 70% realized that the stroke patient or the TIA patient was the highest risk for injury and stroke but they expressed they had trouble with palliative or end-of-life care, like struggling um, if a patient wants to go home, why can't they just go home? Or my patient's, you know, stage four cancer, but they're not in pain and they have a very supportive family struggling with wanting to act as a nurse and provide care to this patient when the patient just needed to go home with support on home health. Similar things within patient rehab, realizing that like only 3% got all five correct, but 60% realized somebody with a brain tumor and seizures is a high priority. Yeah. Whereas having trouble to prioritize things that had to do that were less technical skills, for example, of a stable patient that had had an amputation, but needed therapeutic communication and support. So that was going to be time intensive as far as that therapeutic support, but not necessarily in hands-on psychomotor skills itself. So they were unsure like where things like that fell. So that kind of what opened up to looking at our curriculum itself and how things were taught, where they were taught, is it a priority? What you know, we didn't ask students, students in this group are taught multiple priority setting methods, including the clinical judgment measurement model, but we did not ask them specifically which one they used 
as they went through this. So I thought that was an interesting, you know, concept to look at later, which ones are students actually using and find to be their go-to when they are prioritizing patients and patient care in multiple situation, patient situations. These students also only usually get to care for one patient at a time um, following a nurse. So how can we integrate higher level um, thinking into clinical settings and making them start to think about prioritizing care for multiple patients if they don't have that ability due to clinical site restrictions or program objectives. So that's kind of where that piece went with my dissertation. Wow, like you got a lot of data um, from your dissertation. It's awesome that you were able to pull that much and really take that back to inform your own curriculum uh, as uh, where you interject certain teaching, certain teachings to help address some of those gaps that you identified. That that is excellent. Thanks for sharing that. As you were talking a little bit, you kind of highlighted, you know, that you had an emphasis on screen-based simulation. And you know, in the screen-based simulation world, there's this own, has its own unique set of challenges and opportunities. How have you approached pre-briefing and debriefing these experiences, considering that they're they're at their own device and they have their own unique experience? I've worked with students across levels using several different commercially developed screen-based or virtual simulation products. And, you know, some have some pre-briefing and debriefing pieces associated with it. I kind of think to me, or the way I like to use those are more guides. I do like to have some type of synchronous, either preparation um, or pre-briefing in advance of some of that, as well as some type of synchronous, you know, debriefing. Um, if it has to be asynchronous, still make it interactive with some type of discussion board, things like that. But we have seen some challenges with that. Most of the time we are able to bring them in before or after to have that piece. Um, a lot of the times they're divided up in their clinical groups. So they're able to do those either as a distance modality logged into a Zoom with the faculty being a facilitator to provide that direction and support um, while the students are doing then the SIMS from their own computer and then coming back together when they're done um, or like on campus in our computer lab. But I have also seen the model where and used it where we've sent them out with the simulations to complete and then come back to us. And I found that um, if you don't bring touch points into it for pre-briefing and debriefing and follow-up, that it's obviously not as effective. The learning outcomes aren't as strong. The students don't get out of it as much as you would hope. So that's where some of the things we are. And um, that's kind of where it led to then our faculty development components of how are we preparing faculty for pre-briefing and debriefing, full-time faculty and adjunct clinical faculty as we all use those and rely on that very strongly, our experts in clinical practice for clinical um, education and support for undergraduate nursing, in addition to how this can potentially impact the use of screen-based SIM in graduate education, because we have the challenges as well um, with a lot of those programs moving to online yeah. programming, needing to be distance simulation and preparing those faculty to deliver that. And also the fact that it doesn't frequently count towards their clinical hours or their baseline required direct care clinical hours. Yeah. 
Okay, so in all of this, um, you said that sometimes you have those questions that you're like, why? What burning questions are you now pursuing in your upcoming research that you feel comfortable sharing? Uh, kind of my favorite question is what keeps what's keeping you awake at night uh, to understand uh, to, we need to understand this more based on your work. I'm always pondering things. Um, my coworkers tell me it's like watching socks roll around in the dryer and they're all white. And all of a sudden you see a purple one fly by uh -huh. and that my brain shooting off to, um, to go on. Oh, this is another thing we need to think about. And I was also told by my, um, co-grant writing faculty recently, if I mentioned grant to her one more time, I was going to have something thrown at me. Um, so frequently, let's see, we are currently working on, we've got an NLN, or we've received an NLN uh, research grant for looking at the use of AI in virtual independent patients, which uh, we actually created during COVID, a set of unfolding virtual screen-based scenarios that unfold by week. Google Sites is an amazing thing um, that you can do all kinds of things with. And it's a mix of like unfolding case and kind of simulated things that's that are interactive. The students go through and we're working with a company to develop AI conversations for these pediatric patients to help students practice like history taking, teaching and things like that to make it more real. Cause that's really where students are struggling is the conversations and escalation, de-escalation, teaching and how to communicate with that type of non-technical skill. So that's one of the things we're working on currently. Very passionate about faculty development and getting faculty involved in simulation and getting that buy-in and how to find that in for them, that one thing that's going to, you know, reach out and pull them in to simulation and be engaged. I know, obviously, there are some things, um, being a clinical faculty for so many years, that I believe there are things that have to be done or that you really need to be in direct care to do. But then there are so many things that you can use simulation for to replace and possibly do it better based on the current state of, you know, healthcare and clinical education. And so research with the best way to do faculty development and teach and encourage them to facilitate SIM with best practices, looking at, still looking at simulation and the replacement for clinical and how we still have, you know, different percentages that can be replaced with SIM and what percentage can it be used for and what to replace, how many hours ratio simulation to clinical time just really getting that buy-in as simulation as a quality educational modality. And then looking also now at, in my, with director and overseeing multiple programs is buy-in with graduate faculty and graduate use and simulation throughout the simulation activities they're already doing and may not think of as simulation, standardized patients, OSCEs, um, intensive, you know, skills, sessions. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, I always say we need people who are always, like you said, watching for the purple socks in the, in the laundry. 
um, you know, they're constantly pondering things and then, you know, finding those things that are related to their programs of research and, and jumping off and doing those um, that helps us become a more informed science of teaching and learning uh, and, and in simulation. Uh, as we get ready to wrap up, I'm just curious, what role has Axel played in your career trajectory? Have you found any resources beneficial? Um, tell us just a little bit about that. I am frequently... Uh going to the Anaxel website and finding all kinds of resources between that and SSH, uh, especially the Anaxel when we're looking at tools like the repositories um, and the special interest groups uh, recently got involved with the deans and directors special interest group. And I found that to be very helpful in my role of the past year and a half as director of our simulation in the College of Nursing, lots of networking and meeting others of like mind and simulation, especially in our local area. It has been very helpful connecting to simulation leaders and um, operations specialists in the area. I've been, I found that as a whole, anyone I have met with Axel has been extremely supportive and just so just watching their engagement in simulation and their enthusiasm for simulation education and the wanting to share. Yeah. I'm very lucky in my health professions PhD program to have Susie Cardong Edgren as my dissertation chair and as my advisor throughout the program. And just that level of support and, you know, enthusiasm for simulation and expertise. And just, I'm see, I see that with everyone else that I've been involved with in simulation and with an axle. And I think just knowing that there are people out there that are supportive of what you're doing and willing to be involved and willing to answer questions and able for you to reach out to them has been the most beneficial to me in simulation. Thanks for sharing that. I do find that in the simulation community, I think because we're I mean, we definitely say that we're centered on psychological safety and good feedback, good questions, that it makes for a really good community of welcoming people that really want to pass on their knowledge and let it let it go and, and really see what can be done with that. And you're right, it is, a, it is an extremely welcoming community. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on uh, the podcast uh, and sharing with us the work that you've been doing to advance simulation. We will put some links in the show notes for all of you to, to connect with Dr. Fogg. Uh, we'll also probably ask her to drop in some of how you can connect with her on social media. Thank you uh, again for being on the podcast and to all of our audience. Thanks for tuning in to season two of Let's Talk Sim. Um, it's been a delight. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Let's Talk Sim. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it on social media or leaving us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. All of these things help support this podcast. Visit anaxel.org to learn more about Anaxel, how to get more involved in simulation, and gain access to Anaxel's member offerings. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a second of the latest developments in simulation. See you next time.